Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at burnedbybooks. Let's start the show. Hi, listeners. Stay tuned for a special treat after my interview with Daisy Florin about her debut novel, My Last Innocent Year, one of the biggest launches of 2023. We have the opening of the audiobook of her novel, so do hang on after the interview and enjoy this preview of the wonderful audio edition of My Last Innocent Year. For Isabel Rosen, the protagonist of Daisy Florin's brilliant debut, My Last Innocent Year, college has gone off the rails. Her senior year as an English major at the prestigious Wilder College takes a turn when an unwanted sexual encounter becomes a campus scandal outside of her control. Complicating things is her growing attraction to her creative writing professor, a once famous poet, now journalist, who is married and for many reasons a poor choice for romance. Other scandals, including the blooming Monica Lewinsky affair, which backgrounds Isabel's own intimate choices, challenge friendships and boundaries, bringing to light the dynamics of power, privilege, and gender that plague a pre-Me Too moment in university life. Campus novels populate the literary world in the 21st century. They're as recognizable for their tropes as almost any other subgenre. My Last Innocent Year captures our attention both as a stunning example of the most literary version of that genre, but also as a novel unafraid to ask questions about why illicit relationships are important to the form and how the conversations we have about those relationships and their sexual dimensions too often fail to capture the complexities of desire, gender, and what it means to grow up in the parallel society of a college. In Daisy's hands, nothing about the campus novel feels stayed or expected. She's willing to wade into some of the murkiest and most dangerous territories for the contemporary novel, And the result is that we come away with fresh ideas about how closed communities function and what those communities mean to the liminal period between youth and adulthood. Equal parts a picture of a young artist growing up and a social firestorm of love, lust, and uncertain desires. My Last Innocent Year looks without rose-colored glasses at one of the most fundamental aspects of American life, the college campus. And by giving us such a beautifully wrought narrative voice in the figure of Isabel Rosen, we leave the novel asking much different questions about that unique experience than when we entered her story. My last innocent year will not soon leave your imagination, and it is my great pleasure to welcome Daisy Florin to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for that wonderful read and introduction. Well, thank you for being here. And I should just note that this book will 
be on everyone's reading list, but it, you, it's also impossible to miss because it has one of the most gorgeous covers I've seen in years. And I wanted to just ask you really quickly um, whether you had a choice in that cover and, you know, perhaps who the artist is. Yes. Oh, absolutely. The artist is named Leslie Singer, um, and she is based out in Santa Fe. Um, and I adore the cover. Um, it is so arresting and provocative, and I, 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 I'm just in love with it. So just briefly, this is my debut. I didn't really know how the cover process would go. Um, but my wonderful editor at Hold asked for some input from me early on, and I wrote some sort of long email about what I liked and didn't like. Um, and then they came back to me with this cover and another choice, actually, um, which was also gorgeous. But absolutely, this one for me was the the winner. And I just felt so lucky that, you know, because I hear sometimes the cover process can be difficult or challenging or just trying to get it quite right. And this time it just went off without a hitch. So I, I'm glad you like it. I'm I'm in love with it as well. Oh, I love it. And I think it's 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 quite unique. And that's my complaint often about book covers is that they all look like each other. And this yeah, one this is yeah, unique. it's actually an oil painting. It is um an oil painting um that that already existed um that um the wonderful cover designer at Holt Nicolette Seaback um, just discovered online. Yeah, so that that does make it really, I mean, it absolutely is unique. Yeah. Um, well, it, it is your protagonist, Isabel Rosen, who makes My Last Innocent Year so very captivating. Her voice is at once knowing and naive, intellectual and deeply emotional. We root for her even when she is somewhat misguided. How did Isabel come to you? And did you always know that we would get to know her in college? Oh, um, yes. Uh, the book always was a college story. Um, in very early drafts, I kind of had her leave college and, you know, start out in the world. And then I sort of quickly realized that was not as interesting to me. I think maybe those early like post-college years are just like can be kind of dreary and that would just be another novel perhaps. But um, so so I quickly just um, kept it to this uh, college story and specifically the last semester of college. I think that, you know, she always came to me just as she was. I think that as I wrote, um, and I think this is something that, mm, you know, you have to learn as a novelist and early, you know, early attempts, you know, that the, the, she was very passive. She just kind of observed a lot of things. A lot of things sort of happened to her. And that over time I had to make her have, have a little more agency, be a little mm -hmm. more active. Um, but always, I think, you know, having that n knowingness um, was part of her you know, part of her charm to me. Um, and also, you know, that, you know, you always want to protect your protagonist, but, you know, you also have to like kind of let some bad things happen to her. And, mm -hmm. and I think her making bad, some bad choices was, was always part of the plan. And, you, you know, what I recognized so much is that very, very smart and in many ways, very capable college student who it, in the end is, is still closer to being a young person than they are to being an adult. And that's a that's a very difficult line to ride, I think, in a narrative voice. Was that was that troublesome at all for you? I mean, I think that I, I really was playing with this idea of and maybe that's why the final semester of college just was the right container for the story. Um, you know, this line between child and adult. And, you know, if you think of college as this sort of transformative space where you come in as like, I mean, you're 18, maybe, so you're technically an adult, but, you know, you've maybe just left home for the first time. And then by the time you get to the end, you know, you're supposed to go out in the world and have your own apartment and, you know, make money and all of that. And that, I mean, just very personally, I felt extremely unprepared for that 
transformation. I, I actually yeah. didn't even really know that that's what I was in college to do as sort of dumb as that sounds. Um, and yeah, so I, so I think the whole, you know, and, and Isabel, I think is thinking, you know, at some point, some, some answer is going to come to her, there's going to be some clarity, she's going to get information that other adults have. And I think the, the, the story of the novel is, is understanding that you know, that line between child and adult is is very, very porous. It comes for some people sooner than for others. And, and that adults are really just out there um, making pretty bad choices and making a lot of mistakes. And that that's that's just, you know, what it means to be an adult. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. The last two or three years have been an amazing time for the campus novel. Is that a genre that means something to you? And are there specific examples within that tradition that may have influenced my last innocent year? I have always loved um, campus no novels, you know, um, going back, of course, to The Sacred History, which I had read at the, you know, when it came out when I was in college and then reread and found it just as delightful as ever mm -hmm. um and prep you know which is a oh, yeah. boarding school i novel. forgot about prep love <laughs> that one my gosh love that one um and then more you know the idiot and either or and and i just you know i think if you went to college, you know, there's something almost universal about the experience, like you said, that no matter what course our lives take after college, there are these familiar tropes. So it just kind of can bring you back. Mm -hmm. um, I think that for me, what I wanted to do, you know, I started thinking about the novel when I was in my early 40s, and I felt like I had sort of crossed over into another stage of life that I similarly was unprepared for feeling like, oh, I was no longer young. Um, and I had been young for so long. Um, and so I you just sort of lost my mind a little bit about that. A lot of the like patriarchal cultural messaging about what it meant to be a woman after 40. And, you know, I had been sort of home raising children for a really long time and was just kind of wondering like, well, how did I get here? And um, if you want the answer to how you got somewhere, a lot of those answers, I think, mm -hmm. um, you know, have their root in the college years. So I wanted to look back at that time when I was young, when possibilities seemed limitless, when decisions felt like they had no consequences. Mm -hmm. So the novel really started as that, as like an interrogation on youth, on my own youth, what I thought about people in their 40s when I was in my 20s, and now what I thought about people in their 20s now that I was in my 40s. And so the campus was just, yeah, it was just the the root of that all. And, and it was just a, a great place to revisit, especially with the wisdom um, and the knowledge that I had now. It was just fun to go back and revisit all those places with a little bit more understanding than I had back then. Hmm. Since you do love the form and, and kind of know its history, I, I want to engage you with a pet theory of mine. It's okay. sort of a, a bit of a grim theory, but I think, frankly, from the inside of, of higher education, that we may be watching the decline of the American university. In mm. short order, the economic downturns of 2008 and 2020 mixed with COVID and remote learning mm. have exacerbated a rot that was already feeding off the bones of a once great system. Do you think it's possible our fascination with the campus novel is driven partly by nostalgia for a, a, a going away and perhaps gone away particular experience of higher education in the U.S.? Well, I hear what you're saying. It's it's hard to know, you know, what campus novels will arise out of the current generation of college students, right? Will they will they have a similar, you know, rosy glow of their college years despite all these difficulties? So I, I think that one of the things that was fun for me back to write a, a book about college in the 90s was to sort of remove um cell phones um mm -hmm. and the internet 
you know, which, which, you know, the novel set in 1998, you know, the, the internet existed, there was email, but that's not really um, a part of the story at all. Um, Although you went and, to Dartmouth and Dartmouth was the really the first to have um, internet and, and kind of make a kind of connected campus. Yes. I mean, I actually went to Dartmouth in the fall of 1991 and we were all required to have a computer, um, which, <laughs> which is <I> amazing. <laughs> yeah, I did not have, um, and it was, they were quite expensive at the time. Um, and it was like this sort of extra, you know, charge. And I got sort of the lowest model one that you could get. Um, but I remember, um, I can remember getting an email, you know, very early, like within the first few weeks, someone sent me an email and it was mostly used internally. They were called um, Blitz Mail. Mm -hmm. Blitz Mail. Um, so for any Dartmouth listeners out there, that is a little, <laughs> that's a word I have not, has not crossed my lips in a very long time. But um, I was like shocked. I could not even believe that I had gotten um, this kind of message. So yes, we were using it um, quite early, I think. Yeah, so that that's amazing that you know that. But, um, but I think that, and, and also just, you know, the book, you know, you mentioned that the book sort of touches on the, the Monica Lewinsky, um, Bill Clinton scandal. And again, I wasn't in college in those years exactly, but I was sort of, it, it wasn't as, um, the news wasn't as present in your life. Mm -hmm. So I, yeah, so much. That, you know, yeah. Yeah. So I think even if I had been in college at that time, I may have been like, I would have known about it, but it wasn't, you know, you weren't getting like breaking alerts of every single thing on your phone. Um, so, so I think there was a nostalgia to go back and write about the nineties. Um, and whether, you know, in 20 years, we'll be getting amazing campus novels about, you know, the 2020s and they'll be, they'll be different, but I think they'll still, I think they'll still hold their power. Well, I hope so. Um, the the fictional veil between Wilder and Dartmouth is a thin, almost transparent one. I remember distinctly visiting a friend at, at Dartmouth and having the exact experience you describe in a frat um, with a floor covered in beer and piss and, and vomit. And I try not to make an author's experience my guide to their fiction, but it was pretty clear to me that you wanted Dartmouth to be the shadow setting here. I know that's where you went to school, and so obviously it's a frame of reference, but it, was there something particular about Dartmouth that you wanted to capture in Wilder? Well, I will say, you know, the, the, the novel is not autobiographical, but that piece of it, it is, you know, drawn from my own experience. For me, I... You know, I grew up in New York City, in Manhattan. Dartmouth was a completely different world, completely for somebody like me. Um, I didn't know anyone who had gone there. It was actually not a very popular school for people like me at the time. There were a lot of scandals um, in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, it just had gotten sort of a, a bad rap for the, like the Dartmouth Review nonsense. The Dartmouth and... Review, yeah, there were like a, just some ugly stories that had come out. So it wasn't very popular. Um, and actually, the my father um, at the time said to me, does anyone go to Dartmouth anymore? And, um, <laughs> and he had an old friend um, who was a class of 39, um, who was a, a Jewish guy who had gone to Dartmouth and loved it, like loved it, went up for all his reunions and all of that. And my dad was sort of just like, you know, thought that was so wonderful. And so suggested that I take a look at it. Um, and it was not a very common place for someone like me um, to go. So I, I think that I was writing from that place of feeling like, there was so much to take in at that time, the the remote setting and 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 you know Dartmouth at that time was like barely twenty years into the co coeducation, and we were really grappling with that um, on a daily basis, like how to be a woman on that campus at that time. Mm -hmm. um, it it felt like a very very 
powerful experience for me. And, you know, I had a lot of things that made me an insider. You know, I was, you know, I'm white and I'm, you know, straight and, and all of those things, you know, should have helped, you know, helped me feel like more of an insider than perhaps other people. Um, but I still felt really strongly on the outside um, as a woman and as someone who had grown up the way that I had grown up. Um, so I, I do think I wanted to um, just question that and poke at that. And, mm -hmm. and, and Dartmouth just offered like amazing, you know, material for a novelist, like these crazy parties and um, the the winter carnival and, and just all these things that were just like, just fun to, you know, write about. Mm -hmm. Um, Isabel's Jewishness plays an important role in the novel. Her father owns an appetizing store, which, am I saying that right, by the way? Yes. Yes. Uh, which she must again and again explain as a place to get lox and whitefish and which doesn't mix meat and fish. Her Jewishness, which to her is something that doesn't equate with a strong religious practice, sets her apart even in the Clinton era at at Wilder. Can you tell us how you wanted Isabel's college experience to be colored by her being Jewish? I think that one of the things I'm kind of obsessed with is um, because I grew up in New York and I am, I am Jewish, there is still this um, tension that exists in like what I, for lack of a better word, call like wasp culture. Mm -hmm. um, and that that kind of tension just amuses me. Um, and I like to sort of poke at that as well. Um, so I felt like to make her Jewish, but also make her from this kind of unusual background of her father owning this very like niche, you know, Jewish specialty store um, on the Lower East Side, like what better way to sort of punctuate her outsiderness than to have her, you know, have her father be a shopkeeper, which is an, un, you know, an unusual, unusual profession for someone, you know, like who's at Dartmouth or a school like Wilder School like Dartmouth, um, you know, where people are always asking like, oh, what does your dad do? Or what do your parents do? And so he has this kind of unusual um, job. And he's um, a single, a single father. Yes, he's a single father. They live above the store. And, you know, I did do um, I, ha I did some research into just making sure I was capturing the experience correctly. Um, you know, it's the kind of job that you just work seven days a week, 24 hours a day. You know, you're not like taking Christmas off or like going on a ski vacation. Mm. You know, you have to just work that store. Um, and um, and and I wanted her to. I wanted her to just be really different um, and to feel that. And I just thought that was kind of a kind of a it was a fun thing to write about, too, a fun thing to imagine, mm -hmm. um, like what that would be like. I've spent time um, shopping in stores like that. That's something I did a lot growing up as a kid. We always went down to the Lower East Side to shop in all these specialty stores and eat at like dairy restaurants and go to um the the knish you know yona shimmel knishes and gus's pickles and kosar's bialis and it's like another era um and i i just my my mind just went there and it it, it was really a fun aspect to layer into the book you you even have Isabel mention in passing the history of elite colleges barring Jews or having absolute quotas on their admission. That's a quite recent history. I'm I'm thinking that you know even Yale and seemingly into like the 80s was was doing this. Did you feel that recent history when um, when you were at Dartmouth, and then did you want it to shadow Isabel's experience? Um. I didn't really feel it. I mean, I, you know, not to get into my own like personal, you know, religious background. I, I was from a mixed faith family um, and I wasn't raised religious in either, you know, in any religion. So when I came to college, I didn't really feel like I didn't really identify as as Jewish. Um, I think it was really more my my New York side that felt especially at a place like Dartmouth. Um, 
there was something very strange at that time about being from New York, especially the way that I was from New York. Um, I didn't like I didn't grow up on Fifth Avenue and go to like Trinity or you know what I mean? It was like I was from sort of like a public school in New York and there weren't a lot of people like us there. So the way I had grown up was just so different. Even growing up without any religion felt very different at that time. So I, I wouldn't, you know, like try to speak for the Jewish experience at Dartmouth at that time. But um, yeah, that history is, is, is alive and well, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, while I, I feel like also for Isabel, it's not, it's not that kind of flame of anti-Semitism. There's there's definitely something kind of broiling below people's you know questions about her her father, and maybe that's both a New York and a, a Jewish question. But it's one of the interesting parts of the of how you're twisting what campus novels typically do, which is a lot of times talk about the WASP experience. At campus novels very often, I would say, almost to the exclusion of all other things, involve illicit relationships, often between professors and students. That is certainly here with Isabel and Connolly. But you create a parallel sexual encounter in which Isabel has unwanted sex with her friend Zev right at the beginning of the novel in order to wade into the question of consent. Whereas sex with Zev was unwanted, even though Isabel doesn't explicitly say no when it's happening, sex with Connolly is wanted, and there is attention paid to Isabel's consent to all the physical parts of that relationship. How do these parallel experiences help you understand what consent means in the novel and sort of more generally? So I didn't really set out to write about consent. Um, and I think it's one of the, it was the most difficult part of the novel um, for me by far. I think that the the scene that opens the novel with Zev, just as a sort of process point, was always in the novel, but it actually moved around in the book. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah, it didn't. It, and I, it's hard for me to even like grasp it all at this moment, but um, it eventually became the scene that opened the book. It became like the inciting incident rather late. And once that move was made, the book for me kind of all fell into place um, in just kind of this magical way that is hard to hard to trace, um, really. I think that I wanted Isabel to feel a little bit off balance. Um, when she met Connolly, I wanted her to have kind of a, you know, something in her past, in her very recent past, in addition to all the things she brought, you know, she brought with her to this encounter. In her very recent past, she's had this experience with her friend that makes her vulnerable, makes her uncertain and off balance, and that that might make her more open to this relationship with Connolly. So I think that's sort of how I originally saw them playing off each other. But as the as the work progressed, I saw them really in conversation that um, that the question of whether you can consent to a relationship with your professor because of this inherent power imbalance there was interesting to me because of the the way consent came up in that initial encounter with Zev. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that I resolve that question. I don't think it's a question that can be resolved, at least not by me. Um, but it was interesting to kind of tease out the threads of that and then really not come to a very strong conclusion about it mm -hmm. because that wasn't really the kind of book that I wanted to write. Yeah, and, and, and that makes it in a way much more powerful because it, it sets the that those two events 
unparalleled and draws threads between them in interesting ways and then asks the reader to grapple with it. And I think that's those are the better novels for me, the ones that leave a lot of the grappling in the reader's hands rather than trying to make explicit that there was something that we should take away from that paralleling. Uh, yeah, because I, I think that, um, you know, a lot of women, I'll just say, have had experiences like the one Isabel has with Zev. Um, and I also think a lot of women have had that experience, maybe not going as far as Isabel goes with Connolly, but that moment of, you know, sitting in a room with a man who's in some position of power and just like the the mood in the room changes, something kind of shifts in the energy and you think, you know, oh, is this, are we, you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. like most of the time we recognize those things and, and kind of walk away from them. Um, but I, I in, in this case, I wanted to sort of push and see, well, what would happen if, if you didn't walk away from that? Mm-hmm. Deborah, uh, Isabel's passionate, if somewhat self-consumed friend at Wilder, is the novel's voice of feminist revolution. When Isabel has her complicated and upsetting sexual encounter with Zev, it is Deborah who takes control of the situation and forces Isabel into a public confrontation. What I admire so much about the character of, of Deborah and how you position her is that she is both a figure of well-meaning advocacy for women and someone who ends up stealing Isabel's agency and deciding for herself what should be done in the aftermath of the experience. Could you talk a little bit about De Deborah's role in the event and in the novel more broadly? Yeah, um, I loved writing Deborah. And what happens at the beginning of the book um, is Isabel has this upsetting encounter with Zeb and comes back to her room and Deborah happens to be there. Deborah is also her roommate. And um, Deborah kind of puts a label on what has happened and calls it rape and then together performs an act of, you know, vigilante justice. And just going back to um, Dartmouth, you know, when you'd asked me about Dartmouth before, this was the kind of thing that we did in the 90s at Dartmouth, not that specifically, but this idea of vigilante justice. I mean, we were like kind of tepid about the whole thing, but I think we felt not as much power, you know, institutional power. So we would sort of, we would kind of, you know, do these sort of secret, you know, vigilante missions that we thought were very, very dramatic. So I wanted to kind of recapture that, that moment. Um, so Deborah, you know, is well-meaning and Isabel loves her. Um, but I, I think what you say is right. She does take away some of Isabel's agency in that moment. Um, I think Isabel is someone who needs to think about things for a long time before she acts for better or worse. She feels that way. And Deborah is someone who acts perhaps without giving a lot of thought but, you know, Deborah is also someone who she also is Jewish, um, but comes from a, a, a more affluent, just just a more stable background than Isabel does. Um, and so she can sort of afford to be more of a flamethrower than Isabel can. Um, she can kind of, you know, attack the institution um, because she has a little more support behind her, whereas Isabel at the end of the day, needs the institution. Mm. Um, she needs what Wilder can give her. Um, so she's not as willing to, you know, burn it to the ground as as Deborah sometimes says. That's so interesting. I hadn't I, I hadn't thought that through Deborah's privilege and being able to rock the institution while Isabel mm -hmm. must, in a sense, continue to feel indebted to it. Yeah, I think that was, um, yeah, I, I think that thought of, you know, having an institution to support you is something Isabel does not feel that she has um, because she's from, 
you know, a family where she's lost her mother. She only has her father. You know, they have this store, which I think Isabel comes to see as an institution in itself, but it doesn't feel that way. You know, the the power of the academy is 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 strong and, and what it can give you. And for someone like Isabel who can see it for for you know can see its flaws she also has her family has sacrificed a lot for her to get there and um and she wants to wrap herself in its in its privilege and the privilege that it it might give her you write that men are bound together by seeing each other at their best and that women often become close when seeing each other at their worst. Deborah and Isabel are joined by their moments each of personal crisis. How do you see that functioning? Is that something of uh, that gender really kind of determines in ways about young friendships? I, I think I was trying to say something about, you know, Deborah and Isabel's friendship. You're you're right. They do see each other in these these very trying moments. And that kind of bonds them, especially because they are young. I I, I don't want to speak for men to say that or make a generalized statement about men, but perhaps, you know, men don't connect in those moments of vulnerability as much. But again, that's a, a generalization. So yeah, and, um, and, but and it, just part, felt, it felt right. At, you know, it felt right. Well, and part of it is that college is a time in, in which because as you said, there are not a lot of repercussions to having like very strong, powerful feelings, then that you, you, we can also take this as Isabel's early crafting of an idea about what friendships are. And it makes sense within the context of, of her and Deborah's relationship. But as you say, it may rely on generalizations that will break down for her later on. Yes, I think that, you know, one of the things that I, just to go back to the campus, you know, I think that what makes a campus such a fertile, such fertile territory for fiction is that you are not just the age you are when you're in college um, for, as a student um, and all these you know impressions that you're having really can stay with you a lifetime um, and a friend like Deborah is someone Isabel may not have stayed as close with if she had met her at another time in her life but because it was that friendship was forged in those early college years I, I think it becomes um, almost like an impression in in cement mm. um, yeah, that's really nicely said. There, there are a lot of bad marriages in this novel, or perhaps we could call them complicated. The most prominent is Tom and Joanna, major figures in, in the life of the English department at Wilder. The implosion of their marriage creates a terrible crisis and a worse tragedy, and much of it is on display for Isabel and the students of that department. There's something crucial about how Isabel views this marriage and Connolly's marriage in her youth versus when she herself is married. And, and we will get sort of flash forwards towards the end of the novel about this. There's a, there's a major part of the novel that comes down to the misunderstanding of adulthood, which you were talking a little bit about before, by young people. How do you see the marriages in your novel as being viewed through this lens that adults are supposed to have some information that young people don't and make decisions based on that sort of secret codex of information. But in, in fact, Isabel is witnessing how much they are really sort of flying by the seat of their pants. Yeah, I mean, I think, and that also, I think, goes back to the campus, right? Because the campus is also a place where lots of different people of different ages and at different stages of life are kind of uh, smashed up against each other. So there aren't just the students, of course, but there are the professors, some of whom, you know, are married and maybe have small children and are living their lives on display um, because I think students watch their professors very closely because they're trying to learn not just the subject matter that they're being taught, but like, how do you build a life? How do you have a spouse? How do you have a child? And I think that was something that when I was a young person, I was kind of, you know, obsessed with people who had all of those things. Like, how do you, how do you get from here to there um, and, and have a house and, you know, a, a career and a spouse and maybe a child? Um, 
So I think Isabel views Tom and Joanna, this this other sort of you know star couple in the English department through a very romantic lens. She sees them as having all these things that she may at one point want to have. Um, and there's kind of key scene that takes place in their home where she's in their home. She's, you know, looking at the furniture that they have. She's looking at the, the rugs they have and sort of imagining them buying them together. The photos on their wall that seem to encapsulate this life that she might want to have someday. Um, and then, of course, that particular relationship explodes in a in a very public way in front of a lot of witnesses. And, you know, I don't know that Isabel at that moment understands what she's seeing, understands what it means. It feels kind of you know, maybe gossipy and they're all sort of gossiping about it, but it's actually, you know, tragic and how lives, you know, can fall apart in certain ways. I think at, at some point in my forties, uh, you know, a friend and I, and I were talking and she said, you know, the older I get, the less anything surprises me. You know, it's just like everything happens to everyone eventually. Um, mm -hmm. And I think Isabel is just beginning to see that in the during the course of the novel so daisy before i let you go i would love to know uh, what you're reading and loving right now yeah i just um i'm actually popping back and forth between audiobooks and i've been reading more on my kindle which i can also read on my phone so i feel like i'm just like trying to you know absorb as much content as i can so um I audiobooks just are so incredible these days yeah, and I've sort of recently like discovered them and they've kind of changed, you know, changed my reading life. Um, so I just listened to Now Is Not the Time to Panic by Kevin Wilson. One of my favorites. I, I really loved. I saw you had him on recently um, and I want to listen to that interview now. And actually at the end of the audio book, um, it's read by a, a a narrator, uh, an act, you know, voice actor, but then at the end he narrates the small, um, the short author's note, and that was just oh, that's it so was nice. Great, it oh, was I really nice. So, I loved that book. It's set in 1996, so I got my my 90s, my 90s. <laughs> and then I read Strangers to Ourselves by Rachel Aviv, which is nonfiction, and she's a New Yorker writer. Um, and I really, it's a, a series of um, case studies, psychological case studies, um, but interwoven with her own story of being in an eating disorder hospital when she was six years old and just um, sort of interrogating the ways that the stories that we are told about our mental illness or or our you know the diagnoses that we get can sometimes impact how we feel about ourselves existentially hmm. so i really enjoyed that one and now i am listening to the lying life of adults by elena ferrante oh, um, i read her neapolitan novels over the pandemic um and now i'm listening to this one which is read by marissa tomei oh wow and it's, just <laughs> it's great so um i'm not done with that one yet but i'm really enjoying it and it's just the tv adaptation has just come out is that yes. right? yes yes so i'm i'm you know i'd like to watch it i don't watch as much tv as as i'd like to but um i mean that makes me sound very you know pious and whatever but i just um I get very tired at night and I don't watch, <laughs> watch much. So, uh, I watch it's because of your glamorous life that you don't yeah, have time. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, yeah, I hope I can watch that one. Um, well, thank you for these recommendations. And I can't recommend enough to my listeners my last innocent year. It really is a wonderful, ripping read that is just a marvelous a contribution to the campus novel form. So thank you so much for coming on and talking to me, Daisy. Well, thank you for having me. It's, it's really um, been a pleasure and, and an honor. So thank you so much.
It's hard to say how I ended up in Zev Neiman's dorm room the night before winter break. It was a bitter night, December in New Hampshire, and on our way back from the library, we'd been arguing, this time about whether wind chill was a legitimate meteorological phenomenon, as Zev believed, or a ruse cooked up by weather executives to distract us from the threat of global warming. Weather executives, Zev said. He had a light Israeli accent. Isabel, that's not even a thing. It is so, I said. Stepping over a pile of dirty snow, Zev stopped under a streetlight in front of his dorm and crossed his arms. His face was craggy in the shadows. I never took you for a conspiracy theorist. A left-wing agitator, maybe, but conspiracy theorist. He shook his head. But it's worth considering, right? I tried to read his expression, but Zev was forever inscrutable. Wind blew my coat open, bit through my jeans to the skin. Either way, it's pretty fucking cold. He jerked his head. Want to come in? I shrugged and followed him into the squat cinder block building. So I guess that's how I ended up in Zev Neiman's room. He invited me and I didn't say no. Zev's room, a single overlooking the river, was neat. Bed made, no clothes on the floor. It even smelled clean. Nothing like the other boy bedrooms I'd visited in my nearly four years at Wilder College. I attributed the cleanliness to Zev's two years in the Israeli army defending the Jewish homeland. My homeland, as he liked to remind me. He threw off his parka and flopped on the bed. Books were piled on the only chair, so I walked over and studied his bookshelf. Economics textbooks, books in Hebrew, a couple of paperback thrillers thick as doorstops. I wanted to skip this part. The part where you wondered when the thing you'd come to a boy's bedroom to do would start happening, when you could stop making small talk that only revealed all the ways this boy, any boy, would never understand you. To pass beyond language, straight into touch, I picked up a dog-eared copy of The Executioner's Song. Next to it was a framed picture of a girl standing on a beach wearing a black bikini and mirrored sunglasses. Who's that? Zev was tossing a Nerf basketball back and forth between his hands. My girlfriend, Yael, he said, as if we'd just been speaking about her when, in fact, he'd never mentioned her, never mentioned having a girlfriend at all. I picked up the picture. Yael was pretty, beautiful, actually. Long legs, olive skin, sun-kissed amber hair. I wondered if that's what I might have looked like if my ancestors had made a left instead of a right on their way out of Russia. I was surprised Zev had a girlfriend, but I was more surprised she was so pretty. I glanced over at him, stretched out across the bed, and realized Yael gave him a currency he hadn't had before. How come you never told me about her? Why, he asked. Are you jealous? No, I said, placing the picture back on the shelf. What I felt wasn't jealousy, more curiosity about how you became the kind of girl who let someone take your picture in a bathing suit. Or how you could have a girlfriend, a girlfriend like that, and never even mention it. If I had a boyfriend, I was certain I'd never stop talking about him. Zev was still tossing the basketball between his hands, faster and faster without missing. Why would I tell you about her, he said. Besides, she's there and I'm here, so. He aimed the ball at a hoop hanging over the back of his closet door, Score. I looked out the window at the river glistening in the moonlight. It was the sort of thing you took for granted in college. A bedroom with a river view. I couldn't explain to Zev why I thought it was strange he'd never mentioned Yael without making it sound like I cared, which I didn't. Or maybe I did. Either way, I thought the whole point of having a girlfriend was so that you didn't have to do this anymore. This. I was acutely aware of Zev's presence the rasp of his breath, the creak of the mattress as he shifted his weight. I ran the charm on my necklace back and forth along the chain and listened for a shift in his breathing or some other signal that he was about to touch me. After a minute or two, I heard him stand up and walk toward me, slow steps across the linoleum floor. I felt a hand on my shoulder. I turned, and there he was, his mouth hanging open slightly, as if he had a stuffy nose. I held my breath as he clumsily leaned in and kissed me. I fell back into the bookshelf 
and heard Yael's picture tumble to the floor. I'm not sure what I thought was going to happen, or what I even wanted to happen. I was mainly relieved to know which way the night was going. I might have been as relieved if Zev had asked me to leave because he had a headache or had to study for a test. Even if he had told me to get the fuck out. As I settled into kissing him, feeling his tongue probe the recesses of my mouth in a way that wasn't entirely unpleasant, I started thinking about what it would be like to fuck Zev Neiman, and if I even wanted to. I imagined telling versions of our origin story at future dinner parties. We met as freshmen, but didn't start dating until senior year, I would say, turning a glass of Merlot thoughtfully around in my hands as Zev stroked my knee under the table. I thought about Yael, face down on the floor by our feet, and wondered how she might fit into the narrative. Yael, the inconvenient girlfriend whose heart Zev had to break so he could find his way to me. Zev stuck his hand under my shirt. His tongue was still going, the dinner party beginning to fade. If I had any say in the story, I would one day tell about myself, and at 21, I wasn't sure I did. I didn't know if this is how I wanted it to begin, or if the ending was something I wanted either. It occurred to me then, as Zev squeezed my breast a little too hard, that I wasn't sure what I was doing there. I'd come to Zeb's bedroom more out of curiosity and boredom than desire, because the library, where we bumped into each other, was closing early and I didn't feel like going back to my room yet, and because, despite my strong opinions vis-a-vis windchill, it was pretty fucking cold out. In short, I'd wandered into this encounter the way you wander into a dark room, with one hand outstretched, feeling your way as you go, unable to see what's on the walls or how exactly you might get out. Well, that's all from me for now. My great thanks to Daisy Florin for coming on to talk about her marvelous debut, My Last Innocent Year. And thanks as well to Henry Holt Books for providing the audiobook preview. You can find all of Daisy's recommendations linked to at burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, ways to get some podcast merch, and a contact form for pitching episodes. Next week, I talk to Deepti Kapoor about her blockbuster crime novel, Age of Vice. Until then, this has been Burned by Books. <laughs>